Today's sermon text is Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You know, it was um, back in November of uh, 1989, uh, Carol and I were living in Chicago. We are preparing to go overseas uh, to work with refugees that were coming out of, the, at the time, the Soviet bloc countries, communism, and sharing the gospel with them. And so we were there in training. And so just, you know, probably two months prior to going over there, uh, we're watching TV in the training center in Chicago, and, uh, and the news comes across the TV that the Berlin Wall has fallen. I'm sure some of you remember that. It was an incredible time. Uh, people were rejoicing, excited. Within weeks, the wall was being torn down. And, but it was like in a day, people got this freedom, this incredible freedom that they hadn't had for close to 30 years once Berlin was split into East and West Berlin. So within a moment, people, you get, very irregularly do you find that kind of freedom. People find freedom periodically and individually, but a whole nation is free. I mean, to try to tell one of those East Germans and say, you know, well, do you want to go back to communism? And nobody in their right mind would do it. Nobody, once they've tasted the freedom of the wall coming down, would have wanted to go back into this communistic system. Nobody would. You'd be out of your mind for even asking. This is what Paul's driving at. We've been given the freedom, this incredible freedom from the tyranny of the law through the cross of Jesus Christ. Who wants to go back? That's why Paul takes the, the pen out of the, the secretary's hands. Look with me at verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. You know, it was customary in that day to have a secretary. And a secretary, you dictate the contents of the letter and they would write it. And so, you know, and, and they did this for a number of reasons. Number one, it was for authentication, you know, that Paul would want to write with his own hands. You know, he did this in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. You know, want to make sure these Judaizers, these false teachers are coming in and they're saying, hey, how do we know that Paul wrote this? Do we really know that Paul wrote Yeah, look, it's his own handwriting. But notice he says that with these large letters. Now, why that? You know, someone, I think it's simplistic just to say, well, he had an eye problem. And so he wrote really big for himself. He's not writing a letter. He's not reading a letter. He's writing it. Uh, most scholars think that, no, he wants to draw our attention. He wants to arrest your eyes, as one author said. Rivet your mind. He wants you to say, no, this is a significant issue. We do it all the time, don't we? Write in all caps or maybe put it in bold or double underline it. You want to make sure, hey, don't miss this point. 
So he gives us this conclusion. And, you know, a lot of it's not a short little quick goodbye, see you later, alligator. It's not like that. It's a dense conclusion, probably the densest of all of Paul's letters. And what he's doing is he's kind of recapping the whole letter. And he's saying, don't make the mistake to go into an external religion marked by human observances. Don't measure your relationship with God based upon how you're doing, that that's somehow going to add to or solidify the works of Jesus Christ. He says, no, it's by faith. Paul's reminding us one more time of this gospel that God has moved with incredible mercy to us by giving us a son who would live and die, suffer and die, and be raised so that we might, by faith, find the freedom to live in a new creation. It's the whole theme of the letter. That's what he's doing here. So if you're thinking, if your mind is logical and linear and you, you kind of keep notes, there's really two buckets here. He's, he's warning us of external religion. He's saying, don't go back there. Don't go back into, into slavery of law. So he's warning us of the, of the nature of external religion. And then he's going to invite us into living in light of this new creation, a life of freedom, a life of great joy. And then I'll just have some concluding remarks on the last couple of verses. But, but really, it falls into that contrast, as we've been doing the whole time. So look with me at the warning of external religion. He wants to show you the impotence of what it means for a gospel plus us. So believe and do these things. Look with me at 12 and 13. He says, uh, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, I got to say that over the past three months, I think I've said circumcision more times than in my entire life. And so we're at the end of Galatians, and I hope to not bring it up again anytime soon. But I do want you to understand that, that circumcision is kind of like a symbol of external religion. It, it, it's kind of what they, these Judaizers, were encouraging people to do. In other words, they're saying... Yes, you know, so, so these teachers would come from Jerusalem and they would say, yeah, believe in Jesus as Messiah. Absolutely, he is the Messiah. But, but to be a real Jew, I mean, to really be part of the people of God as it's always been, you've got to be circumcised. You've you got to do this. If you really want to be in the fellowship and if you really want God's favor. And we know this because in Acts 15, 1, he says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, you know, adding circumcision, it's, it's adding to the work of Jesus. Now, when you take Jesus, he's died for your sins, and then you add circumcision, by nature, you're subtracting from the cross of Christ. If you need to do this, then he obviously did not do enough. You need to further it or solidify it or secure it by what you do. Now, a lot of us don't even think of circumcision in religious terms anymore. It, it doesn't even hit our rate. So, so let me try to modernize it for you. What they were doing to this church would be like me saying to you, you come to an elder interview and we say, do you believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah? Yes, I do. That's wonderful. Um, here... Here in this church and before God, we, we also hold these political views. 
You know, we're kind of in this lane politically. Or, or we're here this way culturally. Or you know what? You've got to think these precise theological thoughts. It, it, it's, it's adding to. It's if you really want to be part of us, you need to think like this. So, so let me give you some examples of maybe um, modern day circumcision. It, it might be something along the lines of, um, you know, do your children play sports on Sunday or not? If, if, they, if they do, then uh, I'm not sure. You know, or, or it could be alcohol or not. Or it could be, um, it could be celebrating Christmas or not. It could be do women wear makeup or not. It could be the type of clothing they may wear. That's what, they, that's what we do here. It could be, you know, it's, it's, it's homeschooling or not. Or it's Christian schooling or not. Or public schooling or not. It's, it's these, they may be important issues at some level, but, but when they become part of what, what makes the church the church or a people before God as saved, that's the problem. See, his problem isn't circumcision. His problem is the compelling of circumcision. You need to do this or else. And, and that's what he's driving at here that that is an external religion. It has Jesus in it, no doubt, but it's got other stuff added to it. And so Paul exposes these motives. Look what he says in 12. He says, those who want to make a good showing. These false teachers were obviously wanting to promote themselves. They wanted to be seen in a good light. And if, if they're telling you stuff to do and you do it, it looks good because they've got a following. They're really seeking the praise of men. They want to be honored by men. They want to have these big this big constituency behind them kind of, yeah, see, they all agree with him. He must be doing a great job. Or, or notice he says that they may not be persecuted. They added circumcision so they might not be persecuted. Now, who's doing the persecuting? Well, it's not Rome. They were trying to avoid persecution from the Jewish leadership. You think about Paul being persecuted, Stephen being, it was all by the Jews. Now, now what, what he's saying here is if we just make you be circumcised, if we add it to it, it'll make them happy because that's so essential to them. And it gets us out of the firefight. So they just didn't want, you know, personal glory. They wanted personal safety. And then you see the insincerity of the whole thing. You know, it says that they don't even keep the law themselves, it says. In other words, they, it's like the parent directing the child that they need to do these things, but they themselves don't do it. You know, the hypocrisy over what we see in politics, it's in our own home. And it, that's these motives of these false teachers. So, so what Paul's saying is, don't, he's warning us, don't go to external religion. A religion that is marked by these outward observances, they may be fine to do, but when you're compelled to do them, to be part of what really is the group in the church, or even having a better relationship with God, this is just the nature of legalism. And any adding to Jesus is a taking away of what he's done. So that's why we read back in chapter 5, verse 2, when he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you cannot accept circumcision... Hey, if you don't do this, if you don't believe in it, if you don't practice it, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. So if you want to be circumcised, you got to do it all. He says, for even those, excuse me, he says, 
you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. So the simple point is, external religion, where we take Jesus and then we start layering on cultural or political or theological we start laying on moral obligations that one person, a woman or man must do, then we are just simply falling into external religion or legalism. Now, why is the cross so odious? Why do we need to add things to the cross? Well, simply this, the cross declares to you and to me, every single person in this room, the cross says you're inadequate. You cannot do it. You can't save yourself. And Oh, by the way, you're under the curse of God. And so you stand guilty. No matter the efforts that you make, the intentions that you have, it is inadequate. It is not. A, you cannot save. You're, you cannot somehow, whether it's through circumcision or through never drinking or never going to party or never dancing or wearing this or voting in this way, those will never be adequate to cover what you've done before God. You, the creature before the creator, it just will never do it. And it just humbles us. It, it, it shouts to us, to our can-do spirit, you can't do. You, we are the engine that can't. We can't. It, it just, th there's no way. And, and it ruins our pride and it ruins our self-reliance. Love the way John Stott said it. He said, the cross says to us, I am here because of you. It's your sin I am bearing. It's your curse I am suffering. It's your debt I'm paying. And it's your death, I am dying. This is the Christian faith, believing in that alone. So we need to identify false religion in us. We need to identify where these external religions are creeping in. Where is the boasting being revealed in our life? You know, you think about the young, the young ruler that comes to Jesus who asks about eternal life. And in the conversation, he says to Jesus, hey, I've kept all the commands from my youth up. I mean, I've done it. I mean, I've really been a good kid. I've really, I've really done it right. You, know, you see immediately what he's boasting, and he's boasting in himself and his own capacity to have obeyed the law, at least he thought in his own mind. What, what do you boast in? I mean, what do you want to make a good showing on? It's always the horizontal stuff. It's always the human stuff. It's always the the movement, you know, we look at ourselves and how we've progressed, and then we bring judgment to others in terms of, okay, how am I doing of that person? How am I? And that is where oftentimes our confidence begins to be found in how we relate to others and God. So what do you make a good showing in? Is it the moral improvement you've made? Is it the theological advancement you made? I mean, what... What gives you this confidence? What human confidence that you turn to? You know, in pastor's conferences, it's, a, it's really kind of funny, not funny, um, but about, about kind of talking about, you, you hear pastors, how big the church is, how many services, how many conversions or baptisms. And, and it's, this, it's just making a good showing of yourself by these horizontal markers. And it's kind of like, it's the humble brag. Now, I did consult my interns in PA to make sure I'm not stepping too deep into popular culture. But the humble brag is just a modern way of saying what's always been done. 
which is, yeah, well, we're a relatively small church. We're, we're, just trying to, we're just trying to serve the needs, but the parking lot is, like, full. And, uh, you know, we, we, don't, we can't do everything like the big churches, but, you know, we've got to go to three services now because it's really growing. You know, it's that humble brag. It's, it's where, where are we trusting in ourselves? Where are we trying to make up for the cross? As if it's not enough. So I've got to show you what I've got over here. When I was growing up, my confidence was I was born a Catholic and I was baptized. That, to me, at the time, was adequate. And so I'm, I'm good. Those two boxes are checked off, and I'm good to go now. That's where my confidence was. Where, where is your confidence? It, it, what, what are you tempted to add on to the gospel? Uh, because, you know, it's very, very dangerous. Because all the things that we're doing... And even though they may be good things, if we are resting in them, they don't change us. Only, only the Spirit of God can change. They don't change our culture. You know, the guy that can stand up and be bold and confident that I've never committed adultery doesn't often consider the fact that he lusts every day at the gym. Does he see any problem there? They don't change us. This is why Jesus said, you, you strain out gnats and you swallow camels. Now, what does that mean? Well, of course, they're drinking wine at dinner, and wine is sweet, and so gnats at night are often drawn to the sweetness of the wine. The gnat falls in the wine, and the, the rabbi drinks it, and, but he drinks it with his teeth very close together, so it catches the gnat before it goes in, because you don't want to eat a gnat. You may not know this, but gnats are unlawful to eat, so if you're eating them, it is unlawful according to Old Testament law. He says you strain out gnats because you don't want to be made impure by a gnat, but you'll swallow a camel, which is another unlawful food to eat. In other words, you know, you're, you're going after the lesser things and missing the weightier things. You're carrying a Bible to church, but you're, you're not really loving your neighbor. You know, you're, you're making sure to have a devotion, uh, but you're not forgiving that person that really ticked you off. It, it, you're, you're straining out gnats, swallowing a camel. And it's, it, here's the danger. It's damnable. It's damnable to add to the work of Christ. He says, he's no advantage. You will be severed from him. You will fall from grace. So, so you see the seriousness of it. So, so to what would you be boasting in? What would you be adding to the cross of Christ? Where do you find your confidence? Where would it be? Because many of us, we might need to repent of our religion. That's what Tim Keller says. He says, repent of your religion. It seems so funny to say that because we're religious people. We may need to repent if our confidence is resting in those things. So that, that's the warning. He says, he warns us from the external religion. You see that I, I think I'm explaining it right because look at what Paul does in the very next verse. He shifts now. We're in the second bucket now. And look with me at 14 to 16. He says, but as for me... There he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. They're boasting in themselves and what they've done, which is showing their reliance on themselves and not entirely on the cross of Christ. But, is, but be, I can't say it when I'm reading it. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So notice what Paul's doing. He's holding himself in direct contrast. He's saying, listen, they are self-boasting and they deny the work of the cross. I embrace the work of the cross and I boast in it. I boast in it. He is boasting in nothing but the cross. Now, some of you scholars out there may be saying, well, I thought Paul boasted in his weaknesses and the glory of God and, and God himself. I thought Paul, but he did. But all those things make up that pinnacle work of God, which is sending his own son to die on a cross to save sinners. They're all looking and shining their light to that. That's where God displays all those things. So remember, you know, like Paul says, I resolved to know nothing but Christ crucified. Now, obviously, Paul knew other things besides Christ crucified. But he's trying to show us preeminence. That's what he's doing here. But I'm not going to boast in anything but the cross. Now, to boast, what's it mean to boast? Well, to boast, you, you boast in things that you love, that you focus on, that you dwell on. One author said it this way. He says, what is boasting? To glory and to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in, to live for. The object of our boasting fills our horizons. It engrosses our attention. It absorbs our time and energy. In a word, what we glory in is our obsession. So to say he boasts in the cross, he's saying the cross is everything to him. Now, this should strike you as, as almost paradoxical. How could you glory in a cross? Now, we think of the cross, and we think of it in good terms. To a first century inhabitant, a cross would have been, it was an object of scorn. I mean, it was an object of absolute horror. In Roman society, it was considered unfashionable and impolite to even say the word cross. And nobody would do it. We wear crosses around our neck. You know what it would be like? Like you, you walking around with a coffin hanging off your neck. That's what it would be. I mean, that's what the cross was seen back then. It was a torture instrument. It was a place of death and a horrible death at that. So for Paul to say, I boast in the cross, I mean, it would have turned their, it would have turned their world upside down. Why is that the biggest object in our church? Because it's the biggest object in our lives. That, that reminds us. That's why we boast in the cross. The, the cross right behind me takes front and center. Why? Because, as Paul said, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. So this is incredible when he says he boasts in the cross. That is his obsession. That's why, notice what follows when he writes. He says, he says, I boast except in the I will not boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I crucify and I to the world. So what he's saying here is that true religion, the, the religion of a new creation, that we make our boast in the cross. We're so overwhelmed with the cross that the world dies to us. The world's unimportant to us. So when I talk about the world, I think he means the world's systems, the world's values, the world's goals, the world's ideals, the world's view of this is success. These are accomplishments. If you do these things, then the world will worship you. So when the athlete comes on or the movie star, and we all go crazy, they're kind of a picture of the world. And Paul says, I'm crucified to that. To be crucified to the world. When you get a line... On God, the creator, bringing forth the son to die for us so that we become a new creation. 
Well, then the world, all of a sudden, it's, it's like a balloon that's like, oh, it just goes out. It means nothing. To be crucified to the world means I don't seek the applause of men or women. That I don't value myself based upon others, based on the accomplishments I make. To be crucified to the world means that, that if I am superior in some giftings from God, I don't take any pride in it. It doesn't matter compared to the cross. Or to be inferior. If I'm in a room with better preachers and better ministers and all that stuff, I don't feel, I don't despair. Why? Well, the cross is my hope. It's not how I compare or rate with everybody else. To be crucified by the world doesn't mean I don't need to worry about how many likes I get. By the way, I haven't looked at my Facebook page in 20 years, but I know that many of you just scroll through that baby like nobody's business. How many liked it? To be crucified to the world means that I don't need to build an identity on how I've climbed up the ladder of whatever world you're in, whether it's academia, or this is my business, this is how I, I have value because this business has done well, or, or my job has gone well. To be crucified to the world is not disregarding those things as if they're irrelevant. They're just unimportant as it relates to you and God. So Paul says it this way in Philippians. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So it just levels the playing field in terms of how do we understand ourselves except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you just do this for the rest of your life. So he's saying that true religion, the new creation, leads us to boast in Christ and to not find the world odious, but that we don't use it to understand ourselves but only the cross of Christ. It's incredible freedom, freedom. And this leads to the peace and the mercy that he speaks about in verse 16. Look, he says, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. So what he's saying here is as, all, as for all who walk by this rule, the rule of the new creation. If you get what the cross of Christ has done through faith and through faith, you understand, I'm part of a new creation here, then mercy and peace will be yours. That mercy that you have with God, your sins are forgiven. That even though you'll sin tomorrow, you'll look at the Father as a Father and He'll love you. And the peace that you have, that you never have to fear that final day of, I don't know you. You don't fear that. That gives you freedom in this life. So all who walk by this rule, then you're going to be blessed with mercy and peace. This is what the cross of Christ does. It brings us a peacefulness because we have his mercy and not his judgment. And this is to be ours in this life where the world doesn't have peace. You see how polarized. You see how conflicted. You see how angry everybody is. People don't give mercy. You maybe get a shot, maybe two shots at most. After that, I'm done with you. I'm finished. They don't have, we do with God because of what Christ has done for us. And notice what he says, this is for you and the Israel of God. Now, what's the Israel of God? Well, I would argue, of course, it's the church. And I would argue that because in chapters 3 and 4, what do we find? 
that the children of Abraham are not through ethnic lineage to Abraham. Abraham wasn't even a Jew. So it's not through that. It's not through observing of the law. He's just said the law is part of the old order. It's through faith in Christ. See, Jesus came, Matthew says, as the son of Abraham. He's the perfect son of Abraham. Uh, Theologians would say, Jesus is Israel. So where the whole nation over the whole Old Testament failed, Jesus comes as the quintessential Jew. He is representing Israel. He's absolutely representing all those. Well, he's representing Israel. And so faith in him is what draws us to be children of Abraham. This has huge theological freight right here. What this means is that through faith in Christ, we become children of Abraham. We are heirs to the promises. We are entitled to all the promises in the Old Testament. We become the new Israel. There's no need then for another temple to be built. There's no need then to make Israel a new nation and and have God work. God no longer works in the same way. That's why he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything. What Paul's saying is circumcision and the law, it's part of an old order. Now we're a new creation. We're a new creation. This is, this is an immense idea that the cross was the turning point in history. It's the continental divide of God's redemptive plan. That in the cross, the curse had been removed. Sins have been forgiven. Redemption has been accomplished. We are made new. And this is by the Spirit of God. This, this transformation. When he says that I boast in Christ, he's not simply saying, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He's saying, I've been regenerated by the Spirit to understand I'm a sinner. I've repented and I believe. And now the Spirit of God is sanctifying me and changing me. This is why we always, I always say, do you love God more at the end, at the end of the year? Do you love him more? Because that the expectation is the Spirit of God is going to keep moving us to love him more than love the world and ourselves. And it's going to keep going that way until the end. That's what the new creation is, and that's by the Spirit. We think about that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone, if any man, if any woman be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. He's not just saying your sins have been forgiven. He says the whole order of things has passed away. You're now part of a new creation. Let me explain it to you from the words of Isaiah, because Isaiah prophesied of this day. In chapter 32, he says, For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower become dens forever, a joy of donkeys and a pasture of flocks. In other words, all of the world, all of the brokenness of the world, it's all going to be desolate. But then he says this, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful land and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. This is what Paul's saying gives us the freedom as the Spirit has now moved us out of the old order into the new order. Yes, we're still flesh and blood. We still struggle with sin and we're still going to die a physical death, but we'll never be separated from God. We can live as if we're eternal. And we don't have to worry anymore about how we are grading ourselves in relationship to the values and the customs and the mores of this world. It doesn't mean we're unengaged from the world. It's just not a measuring stick for us. 
that our value, our happiness, our satisfaction, whether we're successful or not, is not driven by that. It's driven by this. It's why we come together all the time. So, so the, the cross of Christ silences all self-boasting. There's no boasting we need to do about ourselves anymore. We don't need to somehow work up the ladder to find meaning or identity or value. Why? Because Christ has conferred meaning upon us by dying for us and saving us. One author said it this way about the fight with self. The truth is we can't boast in ourselves and the cross simultaneously. If we boast in ourselves and our ability to save ourselves, we shall never boast in the cross and in the ability of Christ to save. We must choose only if we've humbled ourselves. As hell-deserving sinners, shall we give up boasting in ourselves, fly to the cross of salvation, and spend the rest of our days glorifying the cross. You will not do this if you're hanging on to some shred. I've got to have some personal dignity in this, and I've got to have some personal stake in it. Then you are severed. He's no advantage to you. Can't have both. Got to make a choice. But the cross of Christ not only silences our boasting, it changes our dynamic about life, right? Doesn't it give you a new purpose to life? I mean, no longer now do you need to build who you are in terms of your self-valuation based upon what you do or what you've accomplished or what you've become, even in religious circles. You know, even if you're growing in Christ, I praise God for that. But I don't want that to add to the confidence. I want it to add to your gratitude to God for giving you the spirit to change you. That's where the praise is. It's not, wow, look at how great you've become, Tom. Because anything you do in this world, any, any level of advancement, improvement, while it may be good and right, and you can be use of God in, in his kingdom in that context, if we find confidence in it, then ultimately you're going to be replaced, right? All of us are going to retire, or we're going to rest in peace, right? Everything we do, I remember my brother still... He was working at Westinghouse, my older brother, and uh, the guy next to him in the next cubicle uh, just had a heart attack and died. He was taken out, and uh, they had somebody in his chair the next day. And I, I remember thinking, you know what? That's, that's, hey, folks, that is the way it is. The graveyard is filled with indispensable men and women. I mean, they're all in there. You can go look at them. And he's saying, the cross of Christ gives us a new paradigm for life. So where are you finding your confidence? Is it in the cross of Christ? I mean, if you struggle with feelings of superiority and pride because you've done so much better, look at the cross. It will humble you. If you struggle with feelings of inferiority and you can never measure up and you look around at all these other beautiful people in this room and they all seem to be ahead of you in whatever category you're, you're evaluating things, and you slip into despair, look at the cross of Christ. That's why I love J.C. Raleigh. He said, there's two men crucified next to Christ. One, of course, one turns in faith and is saved. One doesn't turn in faith, is rejected. He said, two of them are there so that if any of you have despair, you can look and say, there's hope for me. And if any of us presume, we can look and say, whoa, I shouldn't presume. So Paul's giving us, to, he's giving us an option. He's, he's warning us about the external religion and the danger of it, to avoid it, to run from it, to treat it like the bubonic plague. And then he invites us into this new creation, this new creation that comes to us through faith in a crucified Savior who now has given the Spirit another comforter. He will come and he will lead us. 
And he will change us, and he's going to make us into Christ, just like Christ. He's going to conform us into his image. But then notice in 17 and 18, he gives these just final remarks. He gives a warning and a blessing. Now look at 17, because in 17, he says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, when I read that, I thought he just sounds like a tired pastor that finally just says, enough already. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's warning us. He's saying this, since you know that you're now a new creation, and since you know the world has nothing for you in terms of evaluation or goals, or ideas, since you already know that, let's not go back to the law. You've been freed now. Don't go back to the law. Don't trouble me with that anymore. Don't trouble yourselves with it anymore. Don't, don't begin evaluating yourself. If all of a sudden you get the call from the doctor and, and, and you are, you've got three months to live, don't start while reviews of our lives are helpful. But our confidence, who am I in Christ right now? That's where we're going to go. Who am I in Christ? Not what have I done for Christ? Now, there may be a point of repentance in that, but my confidence is not in what I've done. Or what I've added. or what I've, My confidence is in Christ and Christ crucified alone. That's where my hope is. So he's saying, don't trouble yourselves with it. And then Paul expects us to believe him because he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I mean, these other teachers, they avoided preaching Christ crucified and they bear no marks other than the mark of circumcision, which won't help them at all. But I bear in my marks the stigmata, the, the marks of Christ. That's probably from the sufferings that he had. In other words, he chose the path of Christ crucified. It led him to suffering, but joy. But then he gives us the blessing. And look at the blessing when he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus. When, I, when he confers grace to us, when he says the grace be with you, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, be with you, they mean the same thing. He, he wants us, you know, when we hear grace, we think of, well, that's the meal before, that's a prayer before meals. Or we think of grace like a get out of jail card in Monopoly. You know, when you pick it up from the deck there, the, the chance or something, it says get out of jail. You look, oh, that's good. You slide it under the board and you wait for it. You may never use it. You may never get sent to jail. And so it's kind of nice if you need it. But if you don't need it, you're good to go. And you're going around the board. That's what we think of grace. I'm going to pull it out when I need it, when I really get stuck in a jam. He's saying, no, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. He's saying, this is the foundational principle of the Christian faith. God is kind with unmerited favor to give to us a son to do what we could never do for ourselves. And he's saying, live in that grace. He wants us to not just hear it and cognitively understand it. He wants us to be changed by it. When you leave here, you're thinking, I have the grace of our Lord Jesus. I have his favor. I have his merit. I have his righteousness. I have his, I have him. So I'm, I'm safe. I'm accepted. I'm loved. Everybody else may think I'm, they may not feel in ways towards me that I would like them to, but I have him. And if I have him, I have everything. And this is the grace. And notice his tenderness. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't put himself about, I'm the great apostle and you're kind of just peons. No, it's our Lord. We, we share him together. In fact, the last word in Greek is brothers. He wants them to know that you're my brothers. He loves them. He's told them they're foolish, they're bewitched, they're don't slip back, don't be idiots, you're going to do this. I mean, you could hear him in the vernacular really straightening them up, but they're his brothers and he loves them. It's that sweet admonishment. 
So this is the letter. It's a letter leading us to Christ, which leads us to a new creation, which leads us to freedom. We don't want to go back to law. We don't want to go back to the legalistic ways of approaching God. So it's a beautiful letter. I'm, I was intimidated to start it. Now I'm overwhelmed to finish it. And let's just ask God that he would take the contents of these truths and just drive them like seeds deep in the soil of our heart that they might produce a, a great righteousness in our lives for his glory. Then I'll pray for us in just a moment. So just take a moment and ask God for those things. Silently, please.